Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Houseless. My name is Peter Agasta. I'm the host of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. We got an incredible episode. Today is our 70th show, our 70th episode, and we're ringing it in with none other than the great singer, New Yorker, Shilpa Ray. On the show today, Shilpa's going to be playing at Union Pool here in New York City in Brooklyn, New York on February 3rd with the Dreebs and Shark Muffin. Check it out. Please be there at the 8 o'clock door. You can get tickets at union-pool.com. Also, on Valentine's Day, uh, which is February 14th, I had to think about that for a sec, uh, Shilpa's also doing a very important and special uh, Planned Parenthood benefit with um, none other than Jonathan Tubin, who was on uh, a previous episode of The Houseless. In fact, it was episode 36. So this is 70. Go back to 36, and Shilp and here are Jonathan's conversation, which is a great one. And Shilp was playing, along with a few other artists that I work with, Bush Tetras, to be one, and Kendra Morris, all playing at Music Hall of Williamsburg, February 14th, also in Brooklyn, New York, uh, for Planned Parenthood, kind of curated by DJ Jonathan Tobin. So again, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, thank you so much. It's called The House List. Um, every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. My name is Peter Agostin. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, also SoundCloud, backslash The House List Podcast. It's where you can find it on SoundCloud. If you happen to have a, an account... Even if you have one or zero followers, I don't care, or many, many more, please repost the conversation. This was a really great one. Shilpa and I have been working together on a bunch of shows this past year. She put out an incredible album called Door Girl on the Northern Spy imprint, which you can now stream anywhere where you stream any music. And uh, highly advise it. If you have a chance to see her play live, please do. Um, it, she's great. She's an amazing singer, talented piano player, um, harmonium player, and she's got a cool story and she's got a, um, kind of like, you know, we riff and it was really fun. You know, uh, I think in some ways we have a lot in common, both first generation kids, uh, child of, uh, immigrant parents and, we kind of get into that and amongst a lot of stuff she's a, a new york city underground music kind of og at this point in time and i thought it was great and i think if you're a fan of her music you're definitely in for a big treat if you never heard her stuff before then i think you're really gonna dig this and hopefully it'll open up some you know interest to check out some of her previous works you know especially door girl the most recent thing but she put out a few other albums. Um, 2015, she did a great one called uh, Last Year's Savage, also on Northern Spy. And uh, has a long-running, you know, kind of affiliation with Nick Cave, who helped put out another record of hers a few years back, too. So do a little research, get on there, figure it out, and uh, find some stuff. And let us proceed with this amazing conversation. Me and Shilpa Ray, only here on the Houseless Podcast. Thank you guys so much. Check it out, y'all. Enjoy. Now I have sort of like a sense of of your history, kind of like releasing records and what your history here and I guess in New York City is uh, because I can I 
because I identify it with the records, you know, as far as mm-hmm. like the years are sort of like a benchmark. Um, but uh, I would love to kind of get a better idea of like where, how you even kind of like fell into this or got here mm-hmm. because even in this past year too like we've obviously done like a we've done a bunch of shows together and it's like been a pretty pretty busy like um year yeah and it leading into this year or whatever yeah definitely. um but so when did you actually like move here to new york you remember wow i was on an internship uh in 2000 and I was a junior account exec at a business-to-business PR firm. Uh, by <laughs> um, what was that like? Yeah, it was, it was very, I, yeah. Um, it was interesting, because it was not what I wanted to do. Uh, I was getting a business degree basically for my parents because they didn't believe in art school. And I had an opportunity to uh, work in New York, so I took it because I was going to school in Philadelphia, and I didn't really oh. like it there. Were you going to art school in Philadelphia? Or? Oh no, I was. I was going to Drexel. I was going to a tech okay. school. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. There's. There was no. There's no such thing as art school in my household, <laughs> even though my mom was originally a, a painter before she got her arranged marriage. Oh, but you, so you had no leverage to try to sell the art school mm-hmm. angle at Not all. Not at all. No, you don't. You just don't go to art school in my in my family. You have to do something that's going to eventually make you like, you know, six figures. Uh, and I wasn't cut out for any of it. And when you can't be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer because you don't have the grades to pull that, you end up studying business and majoring in marketing because. That's yeah. that's where where you right. can go. <laughs> well, so what? So did, did you try? Did you ever have an aspiration of doing the doctor lawyer thing? Was that? I first? think I said something when I was five because I knew it would make my dad happy. Right. Because he wanted he wanted a doctor in the family. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll be the doctor. <laughs> There's no way. I was a very spacey kid. I was very tough to discipline to because I just kind of did whatever I wanted, even though you know I grew up in a very strict household. So wait, so you grew up in Jersey, right? I grew up in Jersey. So what what town again? I grew up in Hamilton, New Jersey, is where I went to school. Uh-huh. I went to high school around Princeton, New Jersey. Okay. But I, I also spent like very early childhood in Union City. That's where I guess our family started. Even though when my dad immigrated, he immigrated to Queens. Was his first place that he lived. So when did do you know what year he came to the states? Seventy one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Yeah, he was one of the hires. A lot, yeah. A lot of people now ask me if my parents are refugees because it's a very popular question hmm. for brown people. <laughs> but no, uh, during that time period, they were getting a lot of uh, people from places like India and China to come in and fill uh, office jobs for missing people who are missing going to war. There's so many men out right. in the Vietnam War. Yeah. They needed people to work those jobs, and huh. yeah. that's why they were they were bringing, you know, my father's generation over. Right. So, what do you know? What his first job here was? He worked at a chemical company. I cannot remember the name of it. In New York City. Mm-hmm. He was originally an electrical engineer, but you, I guess you can engineer lots of stuff so he went into chemical engineering too and then eventually went into computers like everyone did in the 80s and um 
yeah, he's a self-made man. He was one of the hardest, toughest people I've ever come across. I don't think anyone <laughs> is as hard as my dad. Yeah. I've never met a man as hard as my father. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, because obviously I, there's maybe our our upbringings, they can't be, they're not that different, but there's definitely some, obviously some similarities and some differences. But, you know, my parents came here in 69 um, from Hungary. So, and I got to, when you say that about your dad, it's like I definitely have like have a similar view of my dad too. Was but he was a mechanic and uh, had a garage, foreign car mechanic for thirty years, and um, but he worked like basically seven days a week. You know? Oh yeah. And you come home and like so my mom so basically it was me. I had a brother, and then my dad and my mom, and then but my mom had basically two jobs. So she worked at a printing press and then did all the books for my dad's garage basically, and yet somehow was able to like feed us every meal too which is kind of it's true amazing. that that is the experience is isn't it similar it? so that was kind of yeah totally thing? i mean when you think about it they sacrificed so much and left everything to come to this crazy country and when you stick out too on top of it because you know i'm not white so it's it that on top of it and people making fun of them for not speaking english really well right. Definitely. That was a huge problem. And, I mean, the last thing they'd ever want their kids to do is go to art school and blow it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I think I mean, maybe we have a, that in common, too. That was the mentality. It's like, you're going to do what? You want to be a filmmaker? What is wrong with you, yeah. you know? <laughs> you have to do something that's going to make me proud. So I know you're going to be able to buy that, you know, six-bedroom house in, you know... Connecticut or whatever the American dream was in their minds. And that's what they were pushing for because they did not want to be told or face the fact that coming here was kind of a bullshit idea in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, do you think, like, well, okay. So, I mean, there's, because you can, you can look at that a lot of different ways, too. Like, I want to... Uh, like it say if they didn't and then um, then you were you were born in India then what would your life be like too it would be very different right I mean obviously it would then the options would be much even smaller than they are here I think that's a fair assessment it depends how you look at it because right. a lot of it's about class too I mean right. people look at India as like this, this you know cesspool of misogyny in a lot of ways it is in a lot of ways it isn't, you know. Mm-hmm. It really there's a billion people, right. so you could be part of any circle. It's just so much stuff going on at once. Did you guys go back when you were a kid? Oh yeah, so totally. you went back like every summer or something. Or? Yeah, and I actually really enjoyed it. A lot of kids I know that went back didn't like it so much because you don't get all the the first world sort of right. you know accommodation, but. I loved it because I had cousins. I had people around me that looked like me. So all of a sudden, I was part of a society, part of a culture. I think if I did grow up there, I would just have been very normal. I could picture myself, you know, adjusting to things a lot better. Because I've never had the pleasure of traveling in that country. So I just, my frame of reference is 
kind of small, though I have a bunch of friends and some friends I grew up with that that their parents came to the States and that they would go back. And I, I, would, I did the same thing, going back to Hungary every year with my mom when I was a kid. And so it's a similar experience. But I, uh, so where were your, where was your family based at when you would go back? What um, city would return? Mumbai yeah. and uh, Calcutta. Right. So my dad's family uh, based themselves in Mumbai and my mom's side of the family was from Calcutta. But they're from this, regionally they're from the same. So we spoke, they speak the same dialect. Okay, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, it's a hard, it's a really hard country to pigeonhole into anything. Right. Some people go there and they're like, it's anarchy. And yeah. it kind of is. I mean, could you imagine managing a billion people? That's just in a very condensed space. Right. People have wide ranges of beliefs. Um, you would have to be very philosophical to live there almost to the point of being existential. I mean, you have to share a space with so many, and there's so little space to share. So yeah, your attitude towards things are just different, you know? Yeah. Attitude towards work and poverty is very different, too. What's your family like there? Like, are you you're so close with them? Um, For the most part, I love my cousins on my mom's side of the family. Yeah. I'm closer to my mom's side than my dad's. Um, I just think they turned out great you know they're just cool and they're very forgiving and things that I would think wouldn't be good in their eyes or I'd be judged for they just don't care they're just happy that I'm there mm -hmm. and I like I like that easiness with them for as far as my parents generation goes I mean my aunts my uncles I think there's a lot of there is that judgmental thing of our of my parents' generation. Right. I think a lot of that goes universally to people who grew were born and raised and are American for many generations is there's just something kind of weird about our parents' generation. They they have a lot of rules and a lot of like social upkeep that I don't think a lot of us adhere to. So No, I completely agree with that. And then but I also think to their credit, I guess if you would um they know struggles that perhaps we don't really, we didn't have to necessarily endure, you know. And That's so true, yeah. Which probably later informs this kind of like um, unaccepting impatience that comes with like artists, kid, young American artists. I don't know. I, but I think it's so, it's just like a family by family type of thing too. Um so then, because we, I think we were born the same year too. So, uh, so our at least our timeline, as far as maybe cultural like influences and stuff, is somewhat very similar. similar. Yeah, but, yeah. So, the, and you got a sister? Yeah, I have an older sister. Don't you think like people born around like seventy eight to eighty two, they're just like this forgotten generation of people? <laughs> we're not like Generation X, and we're not millennials. We're sort of that non like over dramatic. We just kind of had to watch both. <laughs> That's an amazing point. Yeah. No, when you put it that way, I mean, yeah, because so my brother was born in 71, so he got yeah. all that good 70s stuff. Yeah, he was there yeah. in, the, in the thick of the 70s, and like as a youngster, you know, the Buck Rogers and the fucking whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. the first Star Wars um, or whatever cultural reference you, yeah, can, you can find. Totally. And then, I guess, I don't know, I mean, what did we have, like, the early 90s, something like that? 
Yeah, I guess. We had the early 90s. And like Could 80s t- TV? We had, yes. We had the Muppets. That was like, sure. <laughs> that was a big deal, right? The Muppets. <laughs> Back to the Future was a really big deal growing up. Michael Jackson was a really big deal growing up, too. Yeah. And that was really cool. Like all those big 80s superstars like Madonna and Cyndi Lauper. But we're, we're definitely not notable for history books. You know what I mean? It's it's like it's all about the millennials now, and you know before it was all about the angst, the Generation X, and they're both so whiny, and <laughs> we're just kind of hanging out, and living life. True. <laughs> so then, <laughs> that's great. No, that's very true. Um, but it has its tough side too, to to growing up during that time. I think it's it it is kind of tougher to be that middle child, I suppose. You know, yeah. nobody pays attention to because. You kind of become the observer of a, of a lot of things that are going on around you. Right. I mean, look at a guy like Nick Cave. So you've worked with him, toured with the guy. Like, what, in, you know, he's from a generation before us, obviously. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, uh, I mean, what a different kind of life that guy compared to ours. I mean, it's sort of like they're a million worlds apart. But, yeah, yeah. but it's kind of cool, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. But I mean, the fact that he obviously plays like a pretty like important role like in your career, I think, um, for a chapter of your career at least, um, that that you guys would find yourselves sort of like minded um, and 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 share time on the road, and he helped you put a record out and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. So, I, yeah. But I mean, he comes from another kind of place altogether. Like, um, he clearly gravitated to your work for a reason. Right. I, I would think like, do you, and I, and I, cause I'm going to have to circle back cause I want to talk about like high school and shit, but, uh, but, um, do you remember how he like found your, music or how you two guys like eventually connected did he find you did he reach out to you wow that's that's a really yeah what happened was i met i met this man named uh, larry ratso sloman who is a okay. writer and he does uh biographies for dylan he did a biography for dylan he did a book on houdini he did uh scar tissue that's anthony Kiedis' yep. autobiography oh, yeah. And also um, worked on the Mike Tyson books uh, that came out recently. And I met him outside of a Sly Stone tribute concert that I was uh, doing. I was singing uh, Sly Stone songs. It was like summer. Here in New York? Mm-hmm. What club? So I have some visual context. Do you remember? What's like the Clinton Castle? Is that what it's called? Like down to, It's some downtown area. It was like outdoors. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. I'm really bad with remembering names of things now, but I'll I'll remember how that, it was like one of the first experiences where they had me just, you know, perform on somebody else's arrangement and stuff. Right. It was a really cool experience. And so he stopped me after the show and we were talking outside and he asked me if I wanted to do his radio show at the KGB bar. And this was like... I feel like it was 10 almost 10 years ago when this happened and I said sure I'll, I'll do this and we did the show and stuff and I thought I'd never like every New York experience you meet someone they're inspired or you become fast friends and then you just never see that person anymore right 
And it turned out his office where he writes, where Ratso writes, was across the street from this denim shop I was working at at the time. Hmm. And we ran into each other on the street, and he was telling me how he was listening to that A Fish Hook and Open Eye, which was the record I had put out at the time. That and was like you self-released that. Yeah. yeah. And he liked it so much, he was going to have his friends, Bob, Lou, and Nick, take a listen to it. Okay. And I thought, you know, this dude's kind of old. Maybe, you know, it's his buddies, plays right. poker with or something like that. I'm like, sure, yeah, Bob, Nick, and Lou, great, man. Like, when are we going to hang out? Whatever. Right. And I didn't realize he was talking about Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, and Nick Cave. <laughs> and he was giving that I guess he gave them all a copy of my record and I think Nick was the only one who liked it <laughs> I, don't, I don't know but Nick came wow. in with his his sons uh, like a couple months later he was visiting Ratso and they all came into the shop I was working at mm, Wow! and I was completely stunned and Nick, Nick Cave pointed to me and was like look that's the lady we heard earlier and I just remember, like, I had a pen in my hand, and it just exploded. And I had all this ink coming down. Uh-huh. And all the girls at the shop were going nuts. And they're like, you know, like, I, I was definitely, like, bottom rank as a salesperson there. And they were just like, oh, my God, and he's here to see a Shulpa? You know? It's like, what's going on? Right. It, was, it was definitely one of those, like, weird 80s movie moments. Um, and I, I remember we were talking to each other but both of us were staring at the floor because we're both not like we're we're both kind of shy initially so it was just sort of like oh okay yeah and that's how we started being friends with each other wow i mean that's that's pretty amazing yeah so then what how did it come about that he would want to do a record with you well i mean we I toured with Grinderman for a few dates because their uh, opening act had broken the, the theremin that they were playing. They had, they had Armin Ra was playing, I think, opening uh-huh. for them. The myth is that I broke his theremin. I did not. I did not what, break. So that you could get the yeah, gig. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, exactly. I saw Grinderman at the uh, in Midtown. I went backstage. We hung out. And apparently the rumor is that I had bro- broken this guy's theremin so I could get on the show. <laughs> but anyway, the theremin broke, and there was no way of repairing it on time. And so they, um, I think it was Jim Sclavunos called me up at work. And one, like a Monday after, and it was so rainy, and I was so bummed out because I had to work my stupid job, and I'd just seen Grinderman play. Which were an incredible band. Too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was just like, here we go again, selling denim. And he, he called he called me on the phone, and he was just like, we need somebody to open these shows and from D.C. into Memphis. Can you do it? And wow. I looked at my boss, and I was like, adios, I'm out. I don't care if you fire me. <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing. These shows, yeah. So Jim's an incredible musician, too. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I he's did. the best. When I worked at the Knitting Factory, one of my um, favorite shows that I did there was a one time only it was I think we did an early and a late show but it was it was Teenage Jesus and the Jerk oh, like, yeah. a reunion show with Jim and yeah. Thurston Moore and Lydia Lunch and maybe one other person on stage 
and I remember Lydia of lunch was like drinking a bottle of Hennessy backstage and shit, which was uh, coming from my hip hop sensibility. I was so oh, impressed. She also that was my first bottle of alcohol, by the way. Hennessy, a bottle of Hennessy in my parents' basement. Oh, that's what's up. Yeah, it's Jersey <laughs> she's, shit. She's right got there. good taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see there is some sort of connection between the two. Of you there, I also gotta say that she really impressed me in that you know the Knitting Factory was like kind of notorious about having this. Their banner backstage, and mm-hmm. she was oh, like, yeah. "Take that fucking banner down!" Oh you yeah, and I had never, I never seen any artist play, much less make a comment about it. Just like whatever, it's there, you know. But to for her to demand that and get it, and um, uh, was pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, I love her. You know, she's amazing. great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so okay, so yeah, so then uh, obviously like. Had you've been playing shows before the Grinderman thing too, right? I mean, yeah. you're doing your own stuff too. Yeah. So were you doing? Had you been performing before you even came to New York? Well, I was I was trained in classical Indian music, so I was performing when I was a kid, oh, but not really? in a band context. And my yeah. dad would be like playing pageant dad, and we do all these competitions and like classical Indian music. Wow. I remember being super young like I started when I was six and then kept going until I was 17 it was really wow. intense really intense training. just like around the tri-state or were you yeah my god and then you'd be showcased like the show pony look at what my daughter can do oh, no. I hated it I mean it's a singing languages I didn't understand like I just couldn't deal at all but, uh, Meaning like that you that the songs were what it was traditional. They were in stuff. Sanskrit. They were in Hindi. They were like in all different languages. And I grew up speaking Bengali, but right. to, not to the point where I could understand a lot of deep things. Sure, you know, sure. it was all conversational. And I, it just wasn't for me. It was a lot of rules and a lot of drilling. And now I look back on it and it's like I can pick up pitch so easily. Right. I don't need instrumentation and really know how to sing something. Hmm. I could hear something once and I'm like, oh, that's what it's doing. I'll right. call right back to you. So that was amazing that I picked up that skill right. from singing like that. But actually doing it as a kid, I mean... I don't know. I wanted to watch movies and hang out with my friends. I didn't want to well, do yeah. any of that kind of stuff. So. so what instruments were you playing? I played the harmonium. Uh-huh. I played the piano because my, my dad thought it was classy right. if we learned how to play the piano. I was not allowed to play guitar because it's too American. Mm. And it was too masculine for in, in their eyes. Right. But that was always the instrument I wanted to play, of course. But, <laughs> 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 you know... Yeah, I we did that. I I was a dancer for a long time. Really? I was like, yeah, I did. I studied dance for about the same time of eleven eleven years of dance. Wow! Because you know, my frame of reference for your artwork now is because I've seen you a lot around the stuff that we're doing right now. You know, or in the last year, which seems very so far away from that in some regards. You know. Yeah. Um, Especially like how you're singing, you know. Oh, what is that? What is that uh, supposed to mean? No, I'm not saying. Not to discredit. You yeah, have range. Yeah, yeah, the range yeah, is there, yeah. just from another uh, <laughs> register, obviously. You know. 
I'm, yeah, I'm you have to learn a lot. It's a lot of screaming and yelling, isn't it? But it works up to it. It's not like yeah. you, it's not like you're screaming and like like you know an intense scream. It there is it's singing, but it's like guttural, yeah. you know. And you kind of you need to play that role if you're going to do be a lead singer. You have to kind of. Right bend the rules and kind of muddy it up and make it dirty. I mean, that's what makes it rock and roll. That's what makes it, makes it punk. Um, I've also done a lot of backing vocal work for people, which oh, is really? way more technical. Like it's, what? Because I'm not hip to that. Like other people's records? Uh, yeah, I've been on session for other people's records before for my friends' albums and uh-huh. stuff. And also I toured with Nick Cave as a backing singer. Oh. And it is a lot of um, knowing how to phrase something, having to sort of pull your voice up to a point so you're not interfering with the, right. with the lead singer and also making uh, the phrasing so it's complementary to what the lead melody is. So it is a, a lot of technical. But do you just learn that too. on the road, on the fly? I mean... No, I actually practice a lot. Right. Yeah, if somebody wants me to sing, uh, even doing a duet or something just on a concert, you know, you have to kind of find your area. Right. I mean, I trained the guys that sing with me now in my band. None of them really knew how to sing, so you have to <laughs> drill them. I could probably into. tell that from being out with them now. I realize that, like, no, I don't look like no, it. and it takes a lot of work. It's like right. a lot of a lot of practice. You have to repeat vocals a lot before you get it. You can't just know what it is and just think you're gonna you're gonna ace the exam. It's more of like yeah. Sure. You gotta sing while you wash the dishes. You gotta sing while you change the sheets to learn somebody else's stuff. Yeah, right. it's a lot. So when we did the video game awards and you did this song, which was Maybell, what was her name? It was Big Maybell. Yeah, it, but Jerry Jerry Lee Lewis has a more famous right a rendition of it, and it was a whole lot of shaking going on. Right, but that but that was kind of like a last minute. Um, request, I guess. If you yes, know. it was a very so, last minute request. So, <laughs> yeah. so, but with that being said, like, uh, so what was, since you didn't have a ton of time to put that together, how did you do that? You know, just technically speaking. Well, I, I listened to the song and I found the chords on the keys because I play by ear a lot and I broke it down to the most essential chords, which is it's a three chord song. And uh, I just kind of wrote those chords and sang it over and over again so I could not only learn what the melody was, but I could also learn it to the point that I could make it my own. Right. Because that's so really important. So kind of bend it towards you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I showed the guys what I did and, and then asked them, you know, well, how about if you change the beat to this so it could accommodate where the lyrics are falling according to my interpretation of right. it. And then you add the guitar, you add the bass, and there you go. It's done. Yeah. It worked well in the context of that event, which was like, a, yeah. you know, uh, If theater. I were to play that song again, and this happens with a lot of songs, especially covers or even songs that you write yourself, you start adding even more flourishes to it. Right, because that was like a first stab yeah, at the Super thing, right? basic, because I was right. like, I have this, this amount of time to do it. I got to right. make sure I can actually get from point A to point B without messing it up. So you just pick all the rudimentary stuff and right. just kind of roll with that. And then as you know it, you know, you can kind of add more to it if yeah because it's kind of an interesting i was just thinking this too like um sort of a side to i guess both your shows but a lot of the records too because you've done like a handful of covers like you know you did the the prince one which is oh, dope yeah. 
and the Lou Reed one, right? Yeah, yeah. So what are the, those were just you picking those and you were like, I always want to do this? You know, they always come from a very weird place because right. it's not like I, it's never calculated. Right. I'll hear something and it's, it's very emotional. I'm either like going through this time period or something happens and I'm like, I got to cover this song. Right. And I think with all of those songs, it kind of happens by circumstance and not by, I got to make this song happen just to see if I could do it. It was just right. more like, I got to cover this song right now. The Lou Reed cover, we did makeup. I had just gotten off tour with The Bad Seeds and I was in Sicily. And uh, I found this place where they sold like Marsala for Marsala wine for a euro. And that's huh. pretty much, you know, what works for me. There was this big outdoor party, and Lou Reed had passed away like about a month ago mm-hmm. before then. Mm-hmm. And they, they played this song, and the one thing I loved about my travels in Italy were that the stray dogs are amazing. They're just so yeah. cool. Right. And they always have a strain of like golden retriever. <laughs> like there's always like wow. a lab or a retriever hanging out that's yeah. a stray, and I'm like, whoever left you, you know? Yeah. Um, and one of them came up to me, while the song was on and just started moving back and forth. So I did the same thing. Wow. And we just had this moment. I was dancing with a dog. <laughs> and, I, you know, and it was a Lou Reed song. And it, I just was like, this is the one I'm going to cover. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that obviously has a very personal yeah. like, attachment to that. That's amazing. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, that's why even like with Door Girl, it seems like uh, you know the most the more current record. You know, it seems like obviously there's a story there. There's a personal story there. It's a quite a literal interpretation of some of your regular life. You know, um, and I want to get into that, but obviously, like you know, this is like maybe your third, fourth album, really, if you kind of add them up. Yeah, you know. It doesn't, regardless of, I, I, I'd love to just even take that record label, like, sort of aspect out of it, because the, in a way, it kind of forces, I think, both the listener that's listening, maybe our conversation, but how they even, like, perceive, like, music, you know, there's, like, this kind of weird, the in, if you take the industry part out of it and allow it to, the, the music itself to sort of exist only as what it is with, like, if it's just like a blank like a record with no information or whatever, then I guess you mm-hmm. kind of hear it a little less obstruction about like what it looks like, or it's like a CDR or some shit like that. You know, it's kind of distracting in some subliminal, like psychological way. Yeah. Um, not to like go on my, on some weird tangent about that, but because if you think, cause I, you know, that's what, I mean, it was informed by your, this job of yours too, right? Yeah, totally. You want to feel like talking about that? <laughs> Do I ever? We don't. Uh, I mean, we... No, yeah, we could totally talk about that. Um, I just, in my mind, just realized nodding my head doesn't translate well on a podcast. You know, no. that's <laughs> making me laugh. Because I keep nodding my head. Um, yeah, I've, I've worked at Dora Pianos for eight years now. I tend to keep jobs for a long time. I think I need something steady. Right. Because I am, by nature, a very um, chaotic person. I have a very chaotic mind. Okay. So I need something to kind of hold it down. So I tend to keep 
I tend to keep jobs for a very long time. And you can come and go from a job like that. Yeah, they're super supportive. They're really supportive about me touring and stuff. They never have ever given me a hard time about it, which is amazing. I really like the people that work there, and I think everybody's in it for the same reasons. Most of the people I work with are artists and musicians. So. Do you find yourself in the front, uh, like on the street, or are you in the back? The I'm in the back of the room. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the back of the room. They have the big guys out in the front. The big guys are up front. Yeah. And then there's also a lady. Her name is Shoshana, and she also works in the front. And she's she's hard. She's a she's a tough broad. Yeah. And then they have me inside, and I work with another bouncer, and I I collect the money, but I also have to make sure that the line is operating okay. And I tend to <laughs> yell at yell and scream at people a lot. Do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was hi- Yeah, I was. I think I mentioned this before. I was hired for the job because I was allowed. That's why they hired. They got. They got me to work. So, there. Why did they, they sourced you out for that? <laughs> yeah, but they they've known me for a while because my band used to play there. Like right. in the mid two thousands, they were like, "Do you need a job?" And I was like, "Yes, I do." Yeah. What is it like? I mean, that you know, as a musician too, like. And when you're that close to the door, I know the makeup of that room. You're not that far from the stage, obviously. No. You know, so you're like kind of inundated with bands every night, too, in a way. And like, yeah, I mean, it's talk about like, uh, you know, absorbing like that kind of it's like uh, not method acting, but I guess like, you know, you're uh, fully immersed in it. It's not like. Oh, like, oh, yeah, I go on tour, so, like, I see, like, the door girl, I guess, quote-unquote, like, and this is my, like, projection of what it might be like to, like, have that job, you know, like, it's kind of like my boho, like, representation of, you know, but uh, it's it's very quite, like, you know, a literal thing. Yeah, it is. I am. I work as a door girl. I've always worked a job on the side. I've never just done music kind of puts you in your place. I mean, I've always worked in the service industry, too. Right. Which is also, like, you could pick up so much writing material because you're dealing with people all the time. Oh, yeah. So that's, it's good for that. Um, but I love the contrast. I mean, there was a time... I remember I got asked to sing with Andrew Bird at Carnegie Hall. Wow. Which is, like, I never thought in a million years I would ever be able to, like be on stage at Carnegie Hall. That's wild to me, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. It was like a crazy moment. Yeah. And then I remember having to work the door the next day, and I had to throw some 22-year-old kid out for calling me a bitch and oh trying to, you know, trying to cause trouble. And I, I just remember the how strange that was, the, the, the two different I sides <laughs> of my life. I just played Carnegie Hall last time. I know, time. now I got to throw your ass. ass out, yeah, for being, oh being a drunken asshole. And that, that's, that's always kind of, I like that. I like the reminder of it. Right. I like the contrast of it. I like how New York that is. It sure is. Because nobody in New York gives a shit about your achievements. It doesn't matter <laughs> how much, what you think you just made or what you did. If you're, if you're walking down the street and it's rush hour, no one gives a shit. They just need to get to where they're going. Yeah. They need to get to their job. They don't have time to, you know, prop you up. Like, and I like that. I think that's a really cool way to be. Yeah. Well, now you haven't lived anywhere else, right? In your adult no. life. Right? No. No. I've lived in New York for, I think I'm on year 18 at this point. So, yeah, it's been a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, oftentimes I think of, 
because I lived in California for a little while, mm-hmm. and but I'm from the East Coast, and I've been here now for yeah, like on to like fifteen ish, and um, you know, it, that's it, it's a humbling, obviously very humbling place, especially for people like us that are like sort of in we can make a tiny bit of money like doing music and then have to kind of and have to work very hard to make that money too you know so you're constantly humbled and you're out late uh, a lot and amidst a certain kind of like environment um yeah there's nothing really like it it doesn't translate like in LA or in Chicago or in London or whatever like that, these other major hubs, I guess, for this kind of community. So, and your music, to me, feels very, especially this last record, too, just, it's, it does feel very, like, late at night in New York, and it's aggressive, and there's some angst, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of, there's a lot of angst, for sure. So then, now, but this is all you, like, on, obviously you have some musicians that played on the record, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But when I first kind of knew about your music, I think probably, a, like, a fair share of people maybe got introduced to your music because you had a band, right? So you had the, was the Happy Hookers, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've worked in a band format. I started out as a solo artist, and I would go to the open mics at Sidewalk Cafe, and that's how uh-huh. I learned how to write songs, basically. Because you remember like your first time? Yeah, I walked in, and there was like an army of people with guitars, and I was like, I don't belong here. <laughs> and uh-huh. I just came in. I had no instrument, and I still put. I don't know why. What made me put my name in the hat? <laughs> but I don't regret it because I just got up and I sang something a cappella that I'd written. And um, Latch, who was running the, the night at the time, came up to me and he's like, if you come by next week and bring an instrument with you, I'm going to give you a show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've never played a show before. You know, this is going to wow. be crazy in, in, in this level, you know. Right. And I, what did I have on me? I had a, I had a beat up harmonium, and that's I just oh, wow. brought this harmonium, and played it and sang. And sure enough, he gave me a thirty minute set. That was the first time I ever had to play a set. I did not have enough songs. I had to write, to fill this thirty minute set up, and it just kind of took off from there. It just kept going, you know. Wow. So for people that might not know like what a harmonium is, like how do you how do you even play that? Uh, it's a bellows instrument, so it's very similar to an accordion or a concertina. It has a very similar right. vibe to that. But you play it like sitting down, like at a table. That's yeah. how it's meant to be played. Right? It operates on reeds, and it's all it's wind power, but it also it's also a reed instrument at the same time. What and do you mean by a reed instrument? Because that's just like a clarinet, right? Or my or my life. <laughs> no, it was, <laughs> it's a wood. Like, wait, it's like several. It's like I'm several sorry. different reeds. Yes. And, Apologies. There's like a lot of different uh, wooden reeds in, on the inside. <laughs> right. I don't know if an accordion runs on, on reeds or not. I think it's just well, it's all air. Right? All air. I, I'm not sure. Can you play an accordion? Yeah, I'm really bad at it because it's very it's very heavy. Yeah. And um, you have to have a very very strong back to play an right. accordion. It's like out of control. And that's the only way you can play it is up, like hanging mm-hmm. off your shoulders, right? And especially if you want to do full size. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I could kind of maneuver around the chords, and then you have those buttons on the 
uh, on the side. Right. I don't know what they're called, but there are all the l- other chords you can play against it. Right. I think it's just, right. a, you know, to drone against what you're playing. Right. It's, it's not easy because it's, it's even more physical than playing sure. a, a harmonium. It's just you have to use all of, all of your back muscles right. for that. So then, so, but that's something you picked up a long time ago. Playing, playing the harmonium, yeah. I had to I had to play it because that's what you play uh, accompanying vocal music in Indian in Indian music, especially North Indian classical music. Okay, you do that. Yeah. And that would be you when you would do that as a child or whatever. Like that would be you alone on stage, just that with no accompaniment, uh, or would it be with like a an ensemble of some kind or no they make you play that stuff by yourself at first until you can even join an ensemble so I never I never joined an uh, an ensemble a lot of people do there's also people who just play harmonium and they do that you can see that a lot in like uh, Kuali music and stuff like that it's like that do you have like personal do you do you like listen to that I love it so what would be some like what are your who do you like in that artist wise or is there like a period of time? Because, you know, and forgive me for and anyone that might be listening to, um, because there's obviously people have different serious depths of like music knowledge and, and uh, especially when they venture all over the world and stuff like that. So my frame of reference, at least for actual artists, I'm just is very low. So I'm just curious too. like the most famous know. one is Nusrat Fatih Ali Khan. He's uh-huh. the most famous, I think, in modern times for uh, Kowali. Um, there's, I, I, I couldn't name it any because I just remember like having those records and they would be like, like Ustad something Khan. There are a lot of Khans in there uh-huh. for sure, which is like a very um, common title for a lot of uh, Pakistani or Af- I don't know if it even translates to Afghani, but Indian and Pakistani yeah. Muslims. They have yeah. a lot. Of, there's a lot of uh, last names that are Khans and stuff. And even though I was uh, born and raised Hindu, my parents would take us out because it's still part of the culture. I mean, right. it's the same instrumentation and it, we watch these functions happen it always happened in some high school in like some town in New Jersey or something like that and you'd watch these people just do that or you'd watch an ensemble with a professional harmonium player and there would be a singer who would sing independently of that or the singer would be on an instrument called a tambora which is also Mm -hmm. a drone instrument while there's a harmonium player, a tabla player sometimes they'll stick a sarod or something in there too but that's how those, those bands are Constructed, right? Um, I yeah, I would have to refresh my memory on that. There was just so many of these vinyls that my my dad had of classical Indian stuff. So he was really into it. I mean, he was yeah, definitely. He always was, wanted to be a singer, but then had to have a real job. And right. did he sing at home? Yeah, that's how. I mean, he, I think that's how I got a voice was through my dad. Does he um, check? For your new shit? No, <laughs> not at all. Did they have they ever no. have your parents ever come to a show? No, not not once. Never. I don't think they ever will either. Not even no. if we book one in Nutley, New Jersey. Or something. <laughs> I don't would, know if that's close. They so would hate it. Well, they live in California now. Oh, yeah. Well, so that's too far. It is, and you were just yeah. there, so they didn't they didn't show. No, no, no. I don't think it. No, my parents would never come to a show. 
It's just because it's what it's too it's too rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, there's a bar. My parents don't drink, so right. there's you know there's a bar and there's all these crazy loud people around, and right. it's also music they don't like. Right. You know, so why would they come watch me do that? <laughs> I know, I get it. Trust me, I understand. I, I experience. Um, but yeah, as but uh, so then then the then the you know your contemporary work, your music and stuff. Then obviously it must have even that much more of like a personal kind of thing because it's it's like you know you're on you're sort of on your own, right? Like yeah, yeah. I mean, you write those songs by yourself too, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of time spent alone for sure. Do you uh, write other stuff that's like not music stuff? Yeah, I do. I like to do that. I I kind of like to write all the time. To be honest, I keep journals and, and things like that just in case I forget my thoughts or what I'm thinking about because right. that always helps. Um, and I'm always like sort of have my hands in something um you do it at work yeah i've written on many a scrap pieces of paper or when i'm supposed to tally your band how many people they brought in there's also a couple of notes happening in the bottom people say some things you know like that are pretty priceless in that moment oh my god yes yes they do yes they do um yeah uh but yeah i think writing is something that's uh, that's very important for me, I always wished I was a visual artist, but I was never very good at it. It was never a complete thing for me where I could just have my own vision to the point that I'm, I'm in complete control of the medium. Right. You know, I can draw somebody a, a picture of a cow and it'll look like a cow, but it, it's oh. not like, you know what I mean? It's not my own thing. Because I know a lot well, of visual artists and I'm like, wow, how did you even come up with that? Yeah, but I mean, a drawing of a cow, it's your own thing if you made it, right? Yeah, I guess like, so. It's I your interpretation so. yeah. of that, you know? Yeah, yeah. But Do you have a bunch of those? Drawings of cows? Not just, uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> just drawings in general? Yeah. Oh, you I should use that. them somehow. Uh, I have, actually. Have the cover of A Fish Hook and Open Eye was a drawing that I did that they yeah. just stuck on the cover because... There was nobody. I didn't have enough money to pay somebody else to do uh, the yeah, album artwork, so I ended up doing it myself. And it looks very amateur, but it's like that's just you know that's just my hand and how I draw, and it's all freehand. So how do you get to that point of like doing an album? Because if you go from like playing like you know an open mic at the Sidewalk Cafe, and then like you're you build from one gig to another, then like what's the, there's a couple of years between there before you put that album out right yes that's very that's very true there were you going you must have been going out too and like seeing shows and bands. all the time i mean i was i started going out to see bands when i went to college because i well i used to sneak out of the house a lot and go to these hardcore shows at the art arts council in princeton because that was the oh, only cool. thing you could do uh when Did you, you were ever go to the terrace f hall in Princeton, yeah. in, oh, the Eating Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have gone there. Did you play there? I've never played there. Okay. No, I they used to book a lot of shows. No, there, it's it's so funny. I get no love from my hometown, but I also really didn't like growing up around there. Right. I didn't like Princeton at all. I thought it was a terrible place to to go to high school. Right. I mean, the college kids call you townies, but everybody's like super rich. So who are they calling townie? I mean, right. it was just a weird mentality. It was very classist and obnoxious there yeah. but they had the Princeton Record Exchange of course and that, still is there 
That oh man, that really I spent all of my babysitting money on on records <laughs> when I was yeah. a teenager. Yeah, totally. It was that was the place to go. But other than that, I I thought I didn't really like anyone there, and I, it didn't fit in at all. So, were you, if you were going to hardcore shows, then were you like buying hardcore records too, and like New York punk records, or what was your? You know, it was a it was a very odd thing because I was a goth kid in high school. But you didn't really get a lot of goth shows you could go to when you were like 14, 15 years old. Because no, I don't think so. No, so you had this thing that they would do at the Arts Council, and it was all ages, and you could go. And I would lie to my parents and tell them I was going to the library across the street. And then in the bathroom of the library, I'd put on my black lipstick and change my clothes. Uh, yeah. And yeah, the whole nine yards and look like a, a freak. And I'd walk into this hardcore show, and... They would all look at me and be like, well, I didn't know vampires came out in the daytime because they hated, they hated the goth Hardcore kids and goth kids did not get along at all. Right. And it was just something to do, you know? There's also probably not a lot of women at hardcore shows too, right? I mean, it's no, very there were tons of girls Were there? there? Yes, there were. Oh, cool. I think there are, women really did want to participate in that scene. And it just wasn't built for them for some odd reason. It was just so well, hard it's to like get. like a boys club. Total boys club. So you have to be the girlfriend or something of right. of somebody. You know what I mean? And it, that was not fun. That was not, that part, I hated that part. Because I knew I could sing better than most of the, the singers up there. And I knew I could pull more volume out of my voice than what they were doing. I mean, they were singing, well, they were screaming incorrectly. <laughs> I picked up as a teenager, so I was like, "You're gonna lose your voice in a in a week. You'll see." But um, so, how would you how how would you constitute that? Well, I wasn't. I mean, I remember some guy coming over to me when I was in high school and wouldn't let me join his band, but really wanted me to give up my harmonium because he wanted to play it. Hmm. And it was that okay. kind of chauvinism right. that was there. So I just thought. You know, I would never talk to anybody about joining bands because it was just ridiculous sure. to but, get in there. But I'm interested in how do you scream incorrectly? What where? Oh, you, the screaming yeah. incorrectly. How can you? I mean, obviously, you can tell when someone's like shrieking in the mic. You know? Yeah, don't <clears throat> scream from your face. That's the worst thing you can do right, to yourself. So like right here, like yeah. in your jaw or whatever. In your jaw and in your throat, you right. can't do that. You have to. You have to pull the. You have to pull the air out of your diaphragm. Right. And you have to use your your nasal cavities. Oh yeah. And then it has to be a, like it has to almost come out like a hook, right? And then get out of your mouth right. that way. Can you do what was it that like Dizzy Gillespie and like uh, some of these guys could do where it was like is a it, circular breathing? Yeah, can you do that? No, that's more for like <laughs> that's horn players. That's horn yeah, players. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know to carry mm. a very long note. I, I don't know if they could apply the same science. Yeah, for for well, Sinatra could do circular breathing, which okay. is why you can never hear him breathing when he's singing. Right. It's all runs and these very fluid phrases. He's hands down. He makes it look so easy, but Definitely. he is an incredible singer. Right. Incredible Absolutely. singer. Um, no, the technique that they show most singers is the open rib cage. Okay. You have to open your rib cage up so your body's aligned and your you know, your diaphragm's open and you have to pull like air from your pelvis up to the chest and then out. And that's really hard to do. It's right. a really, really tough thing to do. And you can lose that skill very easily. You can't, you have to be standing too, right? Yes. Because you, you jump, because I see how you do your show too. It's partially seated and then standing and then you go yeah. back and forth. 
obviously you have to be seated, I guess, to play the harmonium too, right? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 Um, well, to play the play the keys, I, I'm seated because true. I get more leverage from from how my elbows are bent, so I'm not playing like Frankenstein. Right. Right. And then with harmonium, I play standing up because I it's just I like playing standing up on harmonium. But you can sit down on harmonium too if you want. But it's 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 a it's kind of depends on how you throw your throw and move your body, you know. Right. I always wonder how musicians can play standing still. You know, and not moving. Yeah. Blows my mind. Yeah. Any instrument. Yeah. I've definitely seen a lot of guitar, especially if you're playing like a guitar or something, you know, something that's hanging off your body. Like, yeah. I would feel too, you know, I feel like I have to be like, you know, pacing around and, you know, but. Yeah. But whatever works. I mean, it doesn't mean right. that you're a bad player because you're, sure. you're not moving. It just means that's how you play. You know? Right. So when you were playing like in. So I'm just kind of fascinated about when you made that kind of switch over from like, you know, the kind of traditional stuff that you were maybe perhaps, you know, pushed into as a child as far as playing and, and into like what you actually wanted to be doing or I guess what you would eventually like evolve into. Like, so were, did you play anything at all? Any shows like that in high school at all? Like, No, I didn't. I didn't. I so was... it wasn't until you came to New York City, right? It wasn't, in, yeah, it wasn't until I came to New York City. I mean, even when I was going to school in Philadelphia, this it was the same thing at the time where girls were the groupie or the girlfriends, and you have to listen to a bunch of boys talk at you the entire time uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> about things you knew already. Oh, my God. I can only imagine. You know, listen, as a, as a man, my, I, can only, I, can, I can see my perspective, but I've done enough shows of enough genres of music to, and especially like when I lived in California, a lot of like DIY kind of punk shows where you would see that very common trope. Yeah. Oh yeah. So hilarious. It is. But I think that's part of the peacocking, you know, I think, I think peacocking is part of a male thing. And the more they appear to know, they think the more attractive it looks to a woman. I think that's just, I don't know if that's what it is or, I mean, that's just from my point of view, but I mean... Especially when it comes to, like, talking about bands. Oh, yeah, of course. And you gotta, you have to kind of name everything. It's gotta be categorized (laughs) in a specific way, and I mean... I don't, it's 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 a very it's a very uptight sort of thing you have to do. But yeah, I've been collecting records since I was uh, very young, and I had to kind of give up on doing that because I from touring because I couldn't keep moving my stuff and like I kept losing things because of touring because I was sublet my apartment a lot, so I just stopped collecting records. But women do listen to a lot of music and they do know what they're talking about but of it... course absolutely <laughs> absolutely uh, honestly we just don't go about it the same way i i don't think but yeah it, it's no it's kinda... i think it's different i think there's i think that men uh tend to become more like obsessed with just the collecting aspect of it yeah the accumulation and like yeah. the finding of things and it's like you can you can probably track it back to, you know, anyone's childhood where and it what, used to be the stamp collection and now it's the right. the record collection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where I think for <laughs> women and it's probably why some women have these like a little more streamlined collections and stuff to a certain degree. And listen, it's different for everybody, obviously, but they're perhaps 
a slight one tick or two more sentimental with their choices and stuff where it's a little less about like being a completist you know like yeah yeah pressing mono pressings of my thin lizzie collection <laughs> i think yeah. some women are kind of like that too of course but i mean yes. till this i mean till this day i've run into this thing like i didn't know you knew about this certain band i'm like right. yeah i've known about that record for a long time, and people would just be so surprised that I knew about something that they just discovered, right. if, especially if it's coming from a guy. But I just find it funny, because I, when I am around a lot of guys, I don't interject my taste in stuff that much, because I'm also interested in hearing what other people are listening to. <laughs> sure. <laughs> hearing them just rattle on. Yeah, rattle on. Play themselves. Uh, <laughs> So you what, you had another band though too before you were doing before you did the Happy Hookers thing right Yeah what was that I called? had a band called Beat the Devil it was my pseudonym at Sidewalk Cafe so it was something oh, I went okay. by So that's what the real it started as that Yeah it started as that and then I decided one day to get a drummer and a bass player and it completely imploded I did not uh-huh. know how to run a band and I didn't know how to steer other musicians and of course I was working with dudes and they they took advantage of the fact that I didn't quite have a grasp on that kind of stuff and in, so in what way like as far as like it's just a lot of strong arming a lot of p- playing like politics and it was just funny to me looking back because we were all so young mm-hmm. and nothing was really that important right. we weren't making any money you know it was I did it because I I got into music because I thought it was going to be fun. Right. And I definitely got into a situation with that where they just stripped the fun out and made it all business. They started looking at me as a commodity. Oh, she's got that voice. Right. But now we have to make sure she just keeps, you know, making money for us. And that was the mentality with them. And, you know, it was really, Hmm. it was a really hard position to be in. And I I definitely dismantled it after a couple years. I was so miserable. Really? Being there, yeah, I yeah. really, really hated. I really hated that band after a while. <laughs> it was like a what was the analogy that was used before? It was like a golden goose. Yeah, band. the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah. Oh, she's got a voice. I see money, and it was right. just like that's all it was. It was. It just became somebody else's meal ticket or a prospective meal ticket. Right. And which would kind of you know, and I mean, I don't know if that's what applied with the the following group too but I mean obviously it's hard when you sort of start as a soloist and you kind of it seems like you are uh, doing your own thing you know by yourself for you know for your, since your childhood essentially you know so you've already got this like lone wolf thing going on if that if I may be as bold as to say that I don't know if that's accurate no I, I don't think it's bold at all it's very but, accurate yeah. yeah so and then you know that's a so every band has been it's like with dudes behind you too, right? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had other women in the group? I yeah, I've worked with other women. I work with a sax player, uh, Nikki D'Agostino. I think is amazing. Okay. She plays with a lot of different bands too. Um, I've worked with a lot of female vocalists. Um, but as far as your primary primary bands, stuff, you know, I have to be honest. I can't. It doesn't come up as easily. I think it will, though. I think right. we'll, we're going to hit an age where there's going to be so many bass players, guitar players, drummers that are women, you know. Right. It's, become, it's more encouraged now. 
Absolutely. Well, yeah, there is a question of just simply like availability. And yeah, like, exactly. And New York and is a tricky place because yeah. there's a lot of working musicians here too. Well, also the new thing of how to operate a band is to do it how the old old school jazz cats used to do it back mm-hmm. in the day. So now it's like, I'm the band leader. I'm going to pick who I want on this record and, right. and I'm going to pick who I want to tour with me. So sure. I don't have the same people on everything all the time. And that's how... I've chosen to run it, and it's the easiest way to do it. Right. I don't. I don't have to like commit to anybody touring with me for right. long periods of time, and that is a relief on the player because it's hard to tour like that. It's yeah. not easy for everybody to tour all the time, and it's 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 also easier for me because I don't have to be attached to somebody being there all the time. Yeah. Sure. No, that's a cool way to do it. I mean, and like you gotta, I guess the goal is to continue being able to do it too, right? I mean, like. Exactly. And if if I'm doing like 80, 80 to 90% of the arranging and stuff, it's like not hard to just pick up right. somebody and be like, this is how you're supposed to play this, you know? Right, right. And that makes things easier too. So I do come from a place where I, at this point, I'm, in, I'm handling the majority of like what's going on while playing is happening so I don't have to depend on somebody writing parts or writing structural things at all so that's do you you write your videos too some of them yes and some of them no um who's the one who's the one where the guy gets stomped on Oh, the with the Liberation Labia, that one? Yes. Okay. What's the song again? It's, it's Nocturnal Emissions. Right? Yeah, yeah. That one I wrote, yeah. I anything that anything that's crazy and elaborate is something that I probably did because my my brain just runs to these play-like I love saying that to promoters. Yeah. Too. That's my, <laughs> one of my go-to links. I'm starting to believe in the simple idea because <laughs> these productions are starting. <laughs> yeah. They're a lot of work and they cost a lot of money. So you can definitely make a video much cheaper than that. Right. Yeah. But um, I like I like doing stuff like that. I think that, that stuff is a lot of fun. But yeah, I do like to write little scripts here and there and make stories out of things. Well, there's not enough stuff that's like dudes getting like kind of like their ass kicked. You know? <laughs> I think so. I like that one. It just was nice to see. Not in like a sort of pseudo like reverse sex, male on male sexism yeah. thing. You know, the, the, It was during the Todd Akin thing where he was telling us to shut down our bodies. He was telling women to shut yeah, their bodies so it was down. was a response to that. It was definitely a response to that. Um... You know, I think we live in some crazy times. Yes, we true. definitely do, and I think a lot of good is going to come out of it, and a lot of bad is going to come out of it too. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I like I like to tell stories. I like telling stories from a female perspective too, because you don't get a lot of characters that way. No, and people constantly, you know, pigeonhole you into. Are you are you a feminist writer? You're this kind of writer. I don't think it's that. It's just I didn't want I didn't want the female character to be reduced to how Jack White would see it because he has uh-huh. a certain way of writing a, a female character into sure. his songs. And I know he's a he's a huge champion of female musicians, so I'm not trying to knock that with him, but. I just never wanted to hear another song again about women listening to their mothers. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I wanted something more. I was like, I know you're trying to do good. I know you're trying to do good, man. But I, I don't want to hear another song like that. I, I want something that really 
really has a like a, a much more completed thought about a, a, a female character. Yeah. Well, I think too, in the context of like, say, the music industry, uh, from a writing standpoint of female characters, if you will, quote unquote characters, it's like real people that work in the music industry that might not necessarily be art performers, but they, but also performers are included in this. That it's you know it's a very important to have someone writing about that to document that regardless of whether it's fictionalized or or more of like a documentarian style because it's obviously it's without question undoubtedly overloaded with men and i mean in both especially behind the scenes i mean forget about it Forget well, that about was what was cool about those videos too. Like the crew was dominantly female. Well, that's amazing. That's yeah, great. and it's like camera opera. I'm talking camera operators. You know, people doing the technical right. work as well. The editor is both times I did a video, which was written off from scripts for me, was two female editors. Uh, camera, the person, the director of photography was a right. woman. You know, like things like that. And that stuff is really well, that's essential. Yeah. Yeah. Because, well, just because even going back to Door Girl, um, that story is not really one that's been, if it's been told, and I could, listen, I could be very wrong here too, just because I don't know every single story like that that's been told. But I would say six times out of ten, it's probably a man writing writing for the woman's uh, perspective, you know, if it's writing about a character of a woman that's working as a door girl or something like that. Yes. I could be wrong, and I, this is all totally speculative, you know, so I just want to preface that by saying... Oh, I mean, you know, and they would make her, like, tw- like in her early 20s, right. you know? Well, and, yeah, which is yeah, kind of... Yeah. I don't... That's a good question. Now, on average, in New York City, the women that are working the door at a club, I'm... I would... This is just... I'm would be genuinely curious, like, what's the age spread? Is it closer to the early 20s, or is it more in their 30s? Or It's it... really varied. Yeah. Because, I mean, you've met, I can't remember her name, but she's amazing. She's kind of like the door goddess of Mercury Lounge. Oh, yeah. That woman that works there? Yeah. Yes. She's definitely not in her 20s, just like I'm no, not no. in my 20s. Right. You know, right. it's, right. Not, it's not meant as an offensive thing. No. I think what's missing from... A lot of the New York narrative or narrative of being an artist is I'm I'm really tired of hearing stories about people in their twenties. I think it's time to hear stories about people in their thirties and their forties because we're going through a time where we're seeing that you're that there are artists still working menial jobs and still making art. Right. And that's how you have to do it. And you're not like just fresh out of college. Right. Trying things out. Definitely. That's a very important point, too, because Mm -hmm. a lot of those narratives might even be written by people that are new and young in the in the writing industry, in the TV industry, too, I think like um, and it might be perceived perhaps by executives that like people that are pushing 40 that have those jobs. It's like who would watch that, you know, but I think even or who would read it or watch it. I think it's kind of a universal thing, whether you're 18 or like in your late 40s, that that, especially in New York City, where it's hard to get a job, you know, and it's hard to keep a job and make money. You know, not everybody is like a fucking works at Goldman Sachs, you know, and is an entrepreneur. And exactly. like, you know, like 
there's a lot of people that don't have nine to five jobs that either work from home or have multiple jobs. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of going off a little bit, but there's something there that hasn't been explored. Oh you know? yeah, definitely. It's a big world. I think so too. I think so too. And yeah. I think, you know, you definitely need, that's why having diverse hiring practices are good because those stories come to light. Right. To hire the same type of people to write things or to work on things, right. you're just going to get that one story all the time. Yeah. So I I don't know. I think I think it is important to have like you know. That's how that's how things get really interesting. I mean, I don't know. Well, how do you think? Do you think a movie like Taxi Driver could even be made now? Everyone's so grisly looking in it. You know what I mean? Right. And that's like something that's not coveted in in film or TV anymore. You have to be no. very pretty to be on the screen. Oh, no. For no, guys and girls. Instead, we get um, Baby Driver or whatever that was. <laughs> I know. I was, like, I was so yeah. upset with it that would, Could film. you imagine, like, Taxi Driver being, like, played by Zac Efron or something? They would have to put, like, draw yeah. the bags under his eyes. I don't, yeah. you know. Unfortunately, like... I could now, in, in 2018, I could see that movie. Oh, it'd be the, terrible. The reboot with Zac Efron. Oh, God. Oh, my God. No, it would be awful. It would be absolutely <laughs> awful. No, yeah, well, that's that era has. What's funny is that it's not like in real life it hasn't totally disappeared, but I think in fictionalized in storytelling, the people who are responsible for buying and selling those they're they're afraid to get invested in that. I think. Yeah, know? they they are, but they have to they have to understand that their audience really doesn't connect with it either. You know, yeah. it's like it's become. It's become laughable. I mean, when you think about all the stuff that was huge with a lot of people, like Breaking Bad, right. you had some middle-aged people in there. They yeah. somehow got by, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a hit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah. if you dig a little bit, you can find some. So, um, have you started writing, like, another record, or do you think about that, like, far in advance, or do you just, like, get... Um, because you sort of do it all as one broader kind of narrative in a way, if that's the right way to put it. Yeah, I mean, it takes it takes a while to really. Um, it takes a it's it takes a while to get it going. Sure. I always have ideas stewing in my head, but there's I just talked about this earlier today. There's something within albums, the one song that's the linchpin. There's right. always that one song that gets the rest of the record going. It's like once you can conquer that one song off the record, you might write like one or two beforehand, but yeah. then you get the one that gets the ideas just coming out of you. And Is to it, get there is really hard. Sure. So for Door Girl, did it start with one and then you built around it? Or was it like, did you have a couple of loose ideas that sort of were that bookended the thing or what I always knew I wanted to make uh, a record about where I worked because it just there was just so much to say right and I when I started this album I was about two songs in and then had tour for the album before so my brain was just not focused enough you know right, right. and then wrote a couple more songs and then when I wrote EMT was when the rest of it came out that yeah. was the song that really kind of tied it together for yeah. me. So, and yeah, you can tell, you can kind of tell when you listen to it, like when that song yeah. comes up, all of a sudden everybody has like a revelation about, oh, that's what the record is right. about, you know? 
Um, so you did this thing today. We could talk about it. I'd like to talk about it. It was just because I'm because I wanted to wait until you described it for me. But so you went like to this was a to a class, right? Yeah. But it was like a girls' school. Was it? Yeah, it was an all girls school. It's um like a prep school. I don't think it's a. I think it's like a specialized school. It's not a prep school. Right. It was super diverse. Oh, cool. I definitely didn't. It was the Nightingale Bamford School, but I don't know what oh. the background story is behind that at all. But the class I entered was like, it was really diverse, um, which I was really happy to see. It's like high school. It was middle school. Cool. And there were middle school aged girls. It was like fifth, sixth grade. It was wow. Really and I was really intimidated when I read that at first. Like, the, that was who I was supposed to talk to. Sure. Because when you're that age, you can't get kind of crazy. What are they, I'm like not remembering. 11, what are they, 11? Yeah, 12? around 11. Around 11. Like, wow. yeah, yeah. Being 11. Oh Being 11 in, in Lady World is also a wild, wild time. Um, but they were so cool. And they were all in this music class, and they were doing a curriculum on rock and roll and rock and roll songwriting. And cool. So they asked me to come in and talk to them and play some songs and also help them uh, write a rock song. But they had one ready to go. And I have to say, the lyrics were amazing. I was I had the um, experience of having to watch the Grammys at work the night before closed captioned so oh, really? I, I heard I saw I read everyone's bad lyrics <laughs> um, yeah people write really bad lyrics and walking into the classroom and being introduced to their song which I don't want to give away because I don't know if that's you know something special that they want to keep sure sure I was just blown away by how good these lyrics were and I'm like there's a whole machine behind these Grammy winners that write these songs and the lyrics are just oh, yeah. terrible yeah, <laughs> they don't say anything, right. you know. And these these eleven year old girls write better lyrics than that. Oh, yeah. so the class had written the lyrics together. Cool, and they, you sort of helped them, sort of help structure it or something. Well, or? I didn't need to because right. they had a great uh, they had a great verse, like verse, verse, chorus, chorus, and then the bridge, and then you know the chorus again. And it's just uh-huh. a nice structure to the song. Hmm. The only thing I had to point out was that they needed a backbeat because if it's rock and roll. You need a backbeat and you need four to the floor. So it was, right. the beat was off. So that was the only thing hmm. that I noticed. But everything else was spot on. And they were like into having you and stuff? Yeah, they were super excited. They asked very, questions? Lots of questions. Oh, cool. Lots of questions. Lots of questions because apparently they saw some of my videos. So they... <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, we, we kept it as age-appropriate as possible. <laughs> it was really wild discussing concepts and art and music that I just didn't know what territory to cover because right. some of it's very gray and uh-huh. I didn't want to depress anybody, you know, and it, it yeah, can get pretty serious. Yeah, they might not be ready for yeah. some of that stuff, like emotionally. You got to keep it light, yeah. Right, right, you got to right. keep it light. But, um, no, I was, I was very... Uh, surprised at how responsive they were to me and uh, to their teachers as well and cool. it was a very 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 cool experience yeah that's awesome yeah it's it's neat like to see sort of even what you've just done like since we started the new year too it's kind of like a weird mix of very each thing has been quite different as far as these like shows have been going 
Yeah. Know? So it's leading to something, you know, because, you know, I think there's a lot more people that need to hear your record, that need to hear Door Girl, particularly, because it, it's a great piece of work, you know? Oh, thank and, you. Yeah. yeah. And it's a great story that I think kind of like, it's kind of pretty, like, even though it's a New York thing, you know, pretty universal too I feel the same way I mean I don't want the whole New York theme to put people off I'm definitely not trying to shove a lifestyle down someone's throat you know yeah I think what I was trying to say was something about you know how modern life is you know yeah whether you're living in a different city or even not in a city at all you still have to work for a living and pay bills and you have this other part of yourself that's not involved with that and you have to balance the two so yeah definitely yeah i think you did i hit i think you hit the mark <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah and i just appreciate your time you coming here and oh thanks yeah this yeah. is this fun conversation yeah, yeah for sure um cool thank thank you yeah cool yeah. Yeah, yeah that was so great thank you so much to shilpa ray for taking the time Come through and be on the House List Podcast. My name is Peter Agostin, host and producer of the show. Again, if this is your first time ever checking us out, thank you so much for taking some time and listening. Please subscribe. Find us on SoundCloud. You can follow us at, um, at Twitter for more updates, of course, at House List Pod. SoundCloud is the House List Podcast. Otherwise, check us out on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Obviously, if you're listening to it already, then you you, you know one way or another to find it. So, um, yeah, thanks so much. Every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. Make sure you check out Shoba's most recent album, Door Girl. Many more releases to come in the future. And thank you so much. Until the next episode, thank you again and again and again. This is our 70th episode of the show. And we got 70 more to come. (laughs) All right, y'all take care. Peace y'all. I'm out of here. All right.